listening to Radio Tedland. I love you forever and goodbye. Written by Patrick Cullen. Episode 15. Autumn. The Premiere. They watched the fire service fight the flames with their engines and long hoses. Forever speculated that the fire had been started deliberately, so the police could intercept and capture members of the resistance as they fled the flames. As he sat watching with goodbye, forever hoped that nobody had come to any harm. Goodbye seemed to drift in and out of consciousness, watching the fire in the city below, almost as a child at a firework display. Occasionally, she would clap her hands and emit a dampened cheer of wonder, but forever wasn't sure she really grasped what was going on. It was her leg. Forever knew she should have seen a doctor. Now there was nothing to do about it. She was weak and stricken by fever and could barely move the swollen leg. Soon, he said, soon you'll have your surprise, I promise. There are just a few more things that need to happen first. I'd stopped off at a petrol station on the way to the premiere and bought what I needed. Then, a little later, changed into that stupid costume one last time before finding a bench from which to contemplate my life and the situation I found myself in. After that, I'd headed off to find the warehouse, carrying two bottles in the bag that had contained the costume. Vodka in the one, petrol in the other. The only thing I wasn't sure of was who or what would burn. The two filmmakers had been waiting for me outside when I finally got to the warehouse. I'd seen them from a distance, nervously looking in all directions, then saw what I took to be a sign of relief when the one with the glasses spotted me, slowly walking towards them. Everyone else had already gone inside, they told me, when I got to the entrance of the warehouse, and they'd almost given up on my turning up. Had I found it difficult to find the place, they wondered. Was everything okay? 
I let them know that I was fine without letting them know that I'd made a conscious decision to arrive late. They escorted me behind a thick black curtain and into the building, and then asked if they could put my carrier bag anywhere for me. I told them I'd rather keep it with me, saying it contained essential supplies, then shook the bag a little so the glass bottles it contained knocked against each other, and the filmmakers smiled at the recognizable sound and said that it was fine. I could keep a hold of it. I'd arrived so late that I was led into the makeshift cinema in darkness. The others attending the premiere had already found their seats and were now sitting patiently, waiting for the film to begin. The filmmakers made sure I was sitting comfortably on a chair at the rear, then made their way up to the front. A spotlight was turned on as they neared the front, tracking them as they made their way onto a low stage and began to introduce the film. I hadn't known what to expect of the film itself, other than that it was bound to contain some surprises. As I had understood it, it was mainly a documentary about my life as a homeless storyteller. That, at least, was what the filmmakers had told me, and I had imagined the title of the film might reflect that. I was somewhat shocked then when the one with the curly hair stood on stage and said the film was called I Love You Forever and Goodbye. Why, that was what was written on the card she had given me when she had told me our time together was over. Before I learned we had never even truly been together. More than that though, I love you forever and goodbye were the most important words, characters if you will, in the stories about the story I told on the streets of the city. I could see the words had a connection to myself and the stories I told but it wasn't the sort of title I would have chosen for the type of documentary I imagined had been made about me. When the film actually started, I quickly realized that I had yet again misunderstood what had really been going on. Either that or I had once more been lied to. The day that the film crew had appeared from behind trees and shouted, Cut! I had been told that their aim had been to make a documentary about me, an interesting homeless guy. To emphasize the gritty reality of the life I lived, 
they had invented a romantic drama of a love interest for a woman I had been in love with could travel between two polar opposites, a technicolor world of superficial perfection that stood in stark relief to the depths of despair that made up my reality. While I knew there would be elements of this fictive romantic drama used to create a contrast with the documentary parts, I had been in no doubt that overall the film itself would mainly be about me. It wasn't that I was vain or wanted to see myself on a screen. After all, I had said no to the idea of making a film. It had been made against my will and without my knowledge. It was just that I had been told the initial project had been to make a documentary about me. So that was what I had been expecting. That wasn't what was shown on the screen, though. If anyone was the star of the film, it was her. Basically, it was her story. And I added the occasional gritty contrast to her technicolor struggles. The premise of the film seemed to be her attempts to break free of her past. Mainly the childhood abuse she had confessed to me but also what she had purportedly done as an adult in reaction to it, how she had run away from her past, the broken home she had grown up in, the wild life she had lived to try and erase those painful memories from her mind, and then how she had found love Love, the great redeemer. I, though, despite my experiences with her in the half year she quite literally played a role in my life, was not the love interest. I was not her savior in any shape or form. No, her boring boyfriend was for one who finally offered her the safety she needed to finally stop running. Although I was a little in doubt about that, the film seemed to leave it a little uncertain. Was it the boyfriend who was the reason for her stopping running away? Or had she finally got tired of running? And he was simply the one closest to her when she could run no more. That this was left as an open question was one of the few things I appreciated about the film. One thing I definitely didn't enjoy though was seeing the manner in which I myself was portrayed. Far from 
being a hero or simply an innocent romantic interest. I represented the villain of the piece. The role I played in the film's narrative was to encapsulate all she had left behind. I was the reminder of her childhood abuse and the manner in which she had abused herself in the years since, before finding the redeeming love of her banker boyfriend. It was true in as much as fiction can be true that she had become bored with her boyfriend as she had hinted to me but it was only a superficial element of a far greater truth with her self-identity shaped by those terrible childhood experiences she didn't think she deserved happiness instinctually at a place deep inside herself and as yet unreachable for any therapist or well-intentioned friend. She believed she was to blame for what had happened to her, that there was something wrong with her, evil even, and that to enjoy happiness as anything other than a momentary glimpse of how others were allowed to live their lives would be to reward that part of her that was wrong and rather than reward herself she had a deep-seated desire to seek punishment to be fair it was never stated explicitly but I represented her father, nor was I accused of any wrongdoing as such, at least not in regards to her. But I was that bad place she ran to when she couldn't allow herself to be happy. I was the reminder of how her life had been before she had found true love with her boyfriend. The love I talked of with her was somehow tainted, dirty and poisoned. Time spent with me was a return to a destructive, barren past, represented by the story of the man of four seasons living on the beach and each year burning the boat he had built. I began to feel more and more uncomfortable as I sat there in the dark watching the film. When I saw the assault I had suffered play across the screen with one of the attackers, the one as the film showed me, that had been the first to kick me in the head before running away, smiling into the camera as he did so. Then I could take no more. It was unclear whether the assault had actually been planned, scripted 
as it were. But it seemed certain that the filmmakers had allowed it to continue after it had commenced. And following the assault, they had had clear footage of the assailants they could have given to the police so they could try and track them down. They hadn't, though, and that could only be because they valued their creative project higher than any justice I might have been deserving of. I got up from where I was sat and made my way out. It was pitch black, and I got lost trying to make my way back in the same direction I had been led in. Rather than finding the exit, I found a courtyard instead. This was obviously where people would gather after the screening, as there were tables and chairs with bottles of wine and spirits placed around, together with a range of snacks. The whole area was lit by lanterns, and in the middle, surrounded by a ring of tables and chairs, was a boat. It was just as I'd imagined it in the stories I told of the man of four seasons, seemingly built from scrap wood of different types and various lengths, apparently ready to take to the water. I stood transfixed, looking at it in the late autumn evening air, a plastic bag containing two bottles in my hand, and I knew, finally, exactly what I needed to do. I doused the boat in petrol, as best I could. The boat was big compared to the relatively small amount of petrol the bottle contained, but there was a strong breeze that would help spread the flames, and I tried to choose those parts of the boat where there was greatest chance of the fire taking hold. I took a swig of vodka from the other bottle I had with me, then used a rolled-up paper napkin to start the fire. I quickly repeated the process a number of places around the boat, then stood back and looked on as the fire took hold and the flames began to spread. I drained the last of the vodka and threw the bottle into the flames, then realized that I was no longer alone there in the courtyard. She was standing beside me, the woman I had loved. I thought I'd find you here, she said. I looked at her, the light from the spreading fire making her face seem almost demonic. I had been unsure as to how I'd react when I saw her again, and yet... Now that I was standing beside her, I felt nothing. I was spent. The anger I'd felt was being eaten up 
by the flames. I felt the heat of the burning boat and automatically, instinctively, pulled her away to a safer distance. Forgive me for everything, please forgive me. But you should go now, she said. There's a gate over there behind the boat. It's open and it leads out into a car park. Carry on through and you'll be on the main road. Go now. I'll try and delay them. I looked at her, trying to understand why she was trying to help me now, or even if what she was suggesting would help. I decided to take her advice and try and get away. I put my hand on her shoulder, thinking to squeeze it and communicate something, though I was not sure what. When my hand touched her shoulder and lay upon it, though, I didn't want to squeeze it or anything. I didn't even want to touch her, so I withdrew it again. Meet me tomorrow, she said. Meet me tomorrow at our place, when the sun goes down. I nodded and turned to go, seeing the flames now spread from the boat to one of the nearby tables. Forever hoped goodbye would make it. He still talked with her, to her, really, and she hadn't said a word for 24 hours now, not in conversation. She said some things in feverish, sweat-drenched dreams, crying in pain when she moved her leg, adjusting her body in sleep. He told her he'd been into the city and seen the sight of the fire, talked about the things he'd managed to scavenge that were awaiting for her when she was well enough to eat again, and about her surprise that it would be there soon, that he'd got word there was one last thing that needed to be done, that goodbye should hold on just a bit longer, then she'd get her surprise. It was a promise, forever said, then smiled. He always kept his promises, at some point or other. Forever knew there would be a delay because of the fire, but he never worried about time. Finally, though, the last line would be delivered. Whatever should not remain hidden would have been brought to light, and the scene would be set for forever and the final goodbye. Forever recognized it now, accepted it. He believed goodbye knew it too, And at that final moment, forever believed on some level 
goodbye would be conscious of what was happening and that after being occupied with all that had gone before the fire and everything with the story goodbye would understand all that it meant when she said her final goodbye metaphorically if not actually allowed forever would have all the time he might like and a lot he might not like to think about and remember it goodbyes final goodbye goodbye would be gone and this time it would be forever forever